Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information, go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. five-week series today on spiritual warfare. Don't you wish your life and what the enemy does was always that funny? Yeah, too bad it's probably not. If you've been around Grace Life for any time, I've told you some stories about the church I went to in college. It was incredibly influential in making me the believer I am today. One of the things they did that was really good, they talked a lot about spiritual things. They talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, the spiritual world around us, and it made me so much more aware of what God had called me to do, and that was good. But with that comes a a lot of talk about the spiritual war and a lot of talk about what the enemy is doing. And people were always using phrases like this that say, man, the devil is out to get me. It's oh my gosh, the devil didn't want me to make it to church today. He must really hate me. Anybody, Sunday morning, is that just kind of how that goes? Man, the devil gave me this teacher in class. You wouldn't believe her, you know, those kind of things. And when you get fascinated with the enemy like that, well, that is not good, right? So here, let's do this with me. Raise your hand if you would like to give a lot of glory and attention to the enemy. But raise your hand if you want to know how the enemy works and what he's up to in your life. Yeah. And this is the dilemma we have. How do we talk about spiritual warfare? How do we talk about what the enemy is up to without putting too much focus on him and becoming too fascinated with his tactics? That's the very dilemma. As a result, some churches don't talk about this at all. Other churches talk about it, maybe too much, to where we blame the devil for everything that happens, including spilling your coffee and mud puddles coming up in your face. Who knows, right? So here's what we're going to do. For five weeks, we're going to do this series on spiritual warfare, and this is our goal. We are going to do a series on spiritual warfare in a way where we talk about God and give him glory for who he is, and we call out the enemy for who he is. What do y'all think of that? We are going to glorify God for who he is, and we are going to call out the enemy for the loser that he is. And when I say that, I'm not just picking on him and calling him names. He really is and actually is literally the loser. We're going to talk about that today. So what I want us to see today, the first thing that we need to to do to start this series is to understand there is a war. There is a war. Too often we've lost sight of this. Very different from the church I went to in college was the church I grew up going to as a kid. Went there on Sunday mornings, went to Sunday school, went to Wednesday nights. And it had a completely different perspective on spiritual warfare. Matter of fact, they seem to have no perspective on spiritual warfare. Here's how it went. In the beginning, there was a war, right? Some kind of battle. Satan ended up in trouble. In the end, Revelation, there's going to be another battle. What do we do in the meantime? Go to church. Be good. Act like Jesus. Satan is a part of history, and he might be in trouble in the future. Right now, don't think about him. Anybody else? That's kind of where you were raised. Just be good, act like Jesus, go to church, wait for heaven. But it turns out the Bible gives us an incredibly different perspective of the world we live in and the struggles we face. So that's what I want to show you. And I'm not going to show you just one passage so you think I picked out some obscure Old Testament sort of thing. 
I'm going to show you multiple passages so that we understand there truly is a war. Since I'm showing you multiple passages, it's probably easier that you don't try to flip and keep up with me, but you just follow along on the screen. And that'll make it easier for you to take notes, which you're doing, of course, because that's how you apply the sermon to your life on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, right? We, we take notes, so you go back and look at all the hard work I put into talking <laughs> up here. Here you go. So in the book of Daniel, we see an example. Many of you have maybe referred to Daniel by the way you've fasted. If you've ever done a fast, a lot of people will say they're doing a Daniel fast, which is really interesting because they mean different things by that. But one of the things that a lot of people mean by a Daniel fast is that they don't eat for 21 days because there's an example in Scripture where Daniel was praying and fasting, not eating for 21 days because he needed to see God show up and do something. The question is, why 21 days? Well, glad you asked. In chapter 10 says, Then he, the angel who came to talk to Daniel, said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, from the very first time that you prayed, from the very first time you said, God, I need you. From the very first time you said, God, I don't understand what's going on. God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to tell me what the enemy's doing. God, from the first day, your words have been heard. Catch that. From the very first time you cried out to me, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is why he was praying and fasting for 21 days. Because from the very first time that he said, God, I need to talk to you. God, I need an answer from you. God heard. God dispatched an angel. But the angel was resisted in the heavenly realm in a spiritual battle for 21 days, he says. But Michael, one of the chief princes, we know Michael's one of the chief archangels. He's one of the good guys, came and helped him. Now, here's the thing that we miss sometimes. We think that everyone else is our problem. But the Bible actually tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and authorities and the heavenly realms and forces and of the cosmic darkness. That is what we wrestle against. Just like you saw in the video, if you're married, you think you wrestle against flesh and blood. Come on, married people, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, but like you saw in the video there, Sarah's so excited, Will's coming home. Oh, my husband. And then there's this little whisper, a little memory of the last thing that you said to each other that wasn't kind. And suddenly, now you're wrestling against flesh and blood? No, it's against rulers and principalities over darkness. Think about this. Have you ever been to somebody's house, and they're just really godly people? Like, they seem to play worship music 23 and a half hours a day, and they, they pray all the time, and they, they just say, man, in our house, God is going to be worshipped, and they're kind to each other. And you walk in their house, and it's just like, oh, man, like the air is different here. You know what I'm saying? Right? And uh, hopefully I just described your house, right? Everybody's saying, yeah, that's my house, Pastor. That's my house, Pastor. That's okay, whatever. At least you've maybe been to one of those. But maybe you've been to a place where it's the exact opposite. You've been somewhere where you just feel like, man, this place is dark. This place just feels creepy. There's just something. And because those people do not exalt God, they do not worship God. And so the forces, the spiritual forces they worship and invite into that territory is very different. And that's what Daniel faced. Daniel had been taken prisoner away from God's people, away from God's nation, and into one of the worst 
pagan nations on the earth. Matter of fact, it is the nation that all of the future is modeled after. The entire earth and the entire uh, people who do not follow God in the future are named after the same country that took him thousands of years ago. That's pretty bad if your legacy goes that far, right? And they did such evil things that the territory around them had a, a, a force of darkness that existed so much that when an angel tries to come and answer, say, you think you're going to come and answer this prayer for this man? I don't care if he's a man of God. you got to get through us first because we own this land. And it took 21 days that there was a spiritual war before the answer came. So what do we see in this passage? What we see is there's a lot going on in the spiritual realm that we do not see. And we are simply unaware. I want to show you another one. This one is of the prophet Elijah. And we'll set the stage real quick. It turns out that there was the Israelites and they were fighting against another nation that came and, and attacked them. And so this king was attacking them. And no matter what the king did, nothing worked. Every one of his plans was thwarted. And so he did and assumed exactly what you and I would assume, which is why does everything we do not work? There's got to be a traitor in our midst. There's a traitor in our midst. And one of his advisors said, there's not a traitor in our midst. They have a prophet. He tells them what we're going to do. He knows what we're going to do before we do. God tells him, he tells them, we don't have a chance. So the other king says, all right, forget the army. Go after the prophet. There you go. That's what happens if you serve God. Okay, so pick up the story. Second Kings chapter 6 says, When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah, just as chill as he could be, picking up his latte, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Okay, can you all imagine the, the servant just like, what? Dude, like, you're just sitting there drinking your coffee? I'm freaking out. There's only two of us, and there's a whole army. Have you looked out the window? How can you say there's more of us than there are of them? So Elijah prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And he saw. What did he see? Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was a natural army out the window, but when God opened his eyes, he could see a much greater spiritual army. What do we see? Well, once again, we see there's a lot going on in the spiritual realm that we do not see. We are unaware. But you know what else we see? I'll give you this for free. It means that the natural and the spiritual realms, although they are two different realms, are only one reality. And we are so focused on seeing one. It also means that if you choose to live your life for God, if you say, I'm going to use the spiritual gift you put in me, I'm going to fulfill the calling on my life, it means that you might face some difficult natural circumstances. It means somebody might come against you. It means somebody might not like you. It could actually mean if you're really good at what you do, an entire army could come and show up outside your window to take you out, all because you're on God's side. There is a war. Where does this spiritual war come from? That's probably a good question at this point. Thanks for asking. See, here's how it works. There was God. In the beginning, God created a host of heaven, an angelic host that was there. And there were three chief angels. 
One of those chief angels was Lucifer. We also call him Satan. And he wanted to be God. He wanted the glory that belonged to God. He wanted the authority that belonged to God. He wanted the position that belonged to God. But he couldn't be God because God wouldn't let him. And so he was cast down. And since then, he's been intent to destroy the creation of God. All of the earth, all of the universe, but also you. The prized creation of God. And to thwart the very purposes that God has. Let me show you this in Scripture. It comes out of Revelation 12. It says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael, there we go, Michael again. By the way, if anybody's pregnant needs a name for your kid, Michael's a pretty good one, right? He shows up in Scripture in all the good times. Unlike Jimmy. Jimmy never shows up in Scripture. <laughs> it's one of the dumbest southern names you could have. Please do not name your child Jimmy. Chances are he's going to get picked on a lot. Just speaking. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. He was defeated. When I called him a loser earlier, it wasn't picking on him. It's the reality. He has lost. The enemy is defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. In case somebody's wondering, are we making this up? Is this just a picture of something? No, this is literally telling us what happened with Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And pay attention here. Then the dragon became furious and went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Does that explain your life? For thousands of years and until the very end, he has purposed to make war on anybody who says, I will follow God. I will do right, not wrong. I will do what God says, not what I want. I will obey God's word. I will keep God's commands. I will live in a way that glorifies God. I will hold to the testimony of Jesus. I will be a follower of Jesus. Jesus will be my king. He is my Lord. He is my savior. Good news for you. The enemy is intent and has declared war on your life. There is a war. But here's what we misunderstand about its war. This is a no civilian war. It's a no civilian war. We get this idea because we live near a military base. There are people who go off to war and the rest of us, we just go about life. We just continue our little jobs. We're happy, good, red-blooded Americans who eat red meat. We love cheeseburgers and french fries and popcorn and movies. And, and that's just who we are. We go on with life while somebody else fights a war. We call ourselves civilians. But according to the Bible, there's no such thing. So I'm going to show you what the Bible says about us. There are actually only two choices. You've got to be either or. The Bible says that every single one of us is born and begins as a prisoner. We're a prisoner to our sin, and therefore we are captive in the kingdom of darkness. Everyone who is born a human is born a prisoner in the kingdom of darkness. We don't like to hear this. It's not something that we want to say. It's not something we want to know. If this is your first time in church, you're probably mad that I just said it. I was mad the first time I heard it. But it's the reality. It's what God says about us. Because of Adam, because of our sin nature, we are trapped prisoners who need to be rescued from our future, from our sin, from our nature, from our past. The Bible says we are prisoners. But here's the good news. It also tells us that Jesus died, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him. And as a result, we are transferred 
We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. We are rescued from being prisoners and we are made into soldiers in the kingdom of God. You're a prisoner or you're a soldier. The day that you say, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me, I want to live for you. Whatever term you use, the day that you say, Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you. The day that you say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. The day that you say, Jesus, I want to serve you as my Lord and Savior. Whatever terminology you used, however you prayed that prayer, the day that you did that, you were transferred from being a prisoner to becoming a soldier. But there are no civilians. You are one or the other. You will also will be one or the other of something else. Because, see, here's the thing. All prisoners have a future. The Bible tells us that anyone who is a prisoner and remains a prisoner until death. I don't know if it's because no one ever invited them to church. No one ever told them about the love of Jesus. No one ever spoke to them. Or maybe they just rejected everything they ever heard. I don't know what it was. Maybe a combination of all of them. But the Bible tells us that anyone that's a prisoner in the kingdom of darkness has an eternal future as a casualty of war. There'll be a casualty of war. They have an eternal future of condemnation in hell. That is a horrible state to be in. The Bible also tells us that all of those who are soldiers also have an eternal future. Their eternal future is to be victors in Christ. We are more than conquerors. We are victors. And we have an eternal future with our Father in heaven. And that is worth saying amen and clapping for because that is our future. But either way, there are no civilians. And we, we look at a diagram like this and we say, oh, uh, prisoners, well, well those, are, those are like the demons. And those are like the demon-possessed people we read about in the Bible long, long ago. And, and the, the soldiers, well, those are like the pastors, right? You know, pastors are soldiers. Maybe Michael and Gabriel and a couple of angels with them. Pastors are soldiers. Yeah, you know, when your pastor decides to preach a five-week series on spiritual warfare, you should probably pray for him. And I probably should have told you that two weeks ago when I was preparing for this thing. Yeah, I'm a soldier, but I'm not the only one. You see, we are all one or the other. We all will be one or the other. You're either a prisoner or a soldier. You either will be a casualty or a victor. There are no civilians. But we have the wrong expectations of life. And this is why we get so upset with what happens around us. But again, because we're near a military base, a lot of you have actual experience with what I'm about to say. But it, uh, the rest of you, we, we can follow this because so many of our friends have been through this. If a soldier gets deployed and stationed in Afghanistan, if they have to get into a vehicle and leave their home, the safe compound, and they have to drive throughout the city, all they care about, they are happy if they simply do not get blown up or shot at. If they get back to the compound alive with their vehicle still in one piece, they are happy. That's their goal. That's what a soldier expects out of life. But you take that same soldier and you bring him home to Columbia and put him on leave with his family and he starts driving around town, the expectations change. You see, for a civilian, we start getting upset if there are too many red lights. We start getting angry if somebody cuts us off in traffic or somebody pulls out in front of us and how dare they make us slow down. Don't they know I'm more important than them? We get angry if we don't like the bumper sticker on the car in front of us. How dare they put something so stupid on their car? Why would they vote for that person? They're an idiot, right? A soldier is just happy to get eight hours of sleep where they are not called out to go and do something in an emergency or or there's not a bomb going off in the compound. The fact that they can sleep for eight hours would just be a blessing. 
A civilian, on the other hand, wakes up whining about the condition of their mattress, and now I have a pain in my lower back. I can't believe it's been two days since we haven't changed the sheets. This is ridiculous. I want to smell crisp linens when I come home tonight. A soldier wakes up and says, thank God I'm alive to drink the horrible coffee they make here. A civilian says, I can't believe the line was so long at Starbucks, I have to go to Dunkin' Donuts today. We have the wrong expectation of life. We are so distracted with what goes on and we're so caught up in the small little details that don't go the way we want them to go that we begin to think that God is not showing up in our lives and God is not good. God is not good because the line at Starbucks was long. Yes, we actually begin to think such foolish things because we think we're civilians. There is a war and if we're not civilians, then what do we do? This really is our main passage for the day, but it is just one tiny little verse, two short little sentences. It's one of those scriptures, though, that's worth memorizing. So if you're ever looking for things to memorize in scripture, pick this one. It's 1 Peter 5, 8, and it says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be sober-minded. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? You know, sometimes you read a verse like that and it sounds like it's just good poetry. Be sober-minded. Okay, that's good. You know, just pay attention. Yeah, just, just, just keep your distance from the car in front of you. Maybe you won't run into him and have a bad day. You know, just, just. No, it's way more than that. The Greek word behind being sober-minded actually means this. Go figure, it means not drunk. It means not drunk and self-controlled. Not drunk and self-controlled. And a lot of us may, may think, oh, so all I've got to do is not have too many beers and then I'm good, right? No, we've missed the point. You see, the whole reason that people get drunk on whatever substance it is that they like is because they want to escape reality. They don't want to feel what they feel. They don't want to deal with the problems they have. They don't want to know about the struggles anymore. They get to the fourth quarter of the game and their team is losing. They say, I need a third beer, right? We get drunk to escape reality. So being sober-minded means don't be drunk and be self-controlled. It means this. Number one, be in touch with reality. Be in touch with reality. It's a war. You are part of a war. A war is all around you. Get in touch with it. Stop expecting some sort of perfect civilian life. You see, we are not in touch with reality when we expect perfect circumstances and everything to go our way, every light to be green, mud puddles to never splash on us, for us to never have to walk in the rain, for our air conditioners never to break, for our cars never to have a problem, for us to always get every job we apply for, for us to get every promotion that comes. We are not sober-minded when we are surprised by what the enemy does to us. We're not sober-minded when we're angry or depressed about the fallen world struggles that we all face. We're not sober-minded that when, when we believe that life should be perfect because God loves me. I'm God's favorite child. I should win the lottery. And if I don't win the lottery, I should at least get my salary doubled because God loves me. We're not in touch with reality when that's our theology. We're not in touch with reality when we sort of blame the devil for everything, but then we truly blame God because he let the devil do it. How dare you, God? You're supposed to like me. I go to church every week. What's your problem? 
And we blame God when a box of nails falls off of the truck in front of us and all four tires are flattened. We didn't have money for that. We didn't prepare for that. Now it's God's problem. We're devastated. Why didn't he bless us instead? He's robbing from us. We're not sober-minded. Did you see the song that we sang earlier? People ask me sometimes, how do you choose your worship songs at Grace Life? What, what do you and Brett decide is the, the, the matrix for what makes a song? I'm going to tell you this. It's songs that help us be sober-minded. We want to sing words that are going to make us sober-minded. We were singing earlier, doesn't matter what I feel. Doesn't matter what I see. My hope is not in how I feel. My hope is not in what I see. My hope is in the promises of my God to me. That is what we were singing. That's what it means to be sober-minded. We're not in touch with reality when our feelings say, oh, I don't feel like God loves me today. I guess God's not really there. I don't feel like God hears me when, when I pray, so oh, I guess, you know, God lost the war. No, that's how we feel. That's not being sober-minded. Sober-minded says it doesn't matter what I feel like today. God is good. Sober-minded says it doesn't matter my circumstances or what I see. God is good. Sober-minded says it doesn't matter if it looks like the enemy's winning. That is an optical illusion for a short period of time because God is on his throne and he has won. That's what it means to be sober-minded. Simply put, we are not in touch with reality when we think we are bystanders watching a war between God and Satan. No. Being sober-minded means wake up. You have a uniform. You are a soldier. Be watchful. Which leads us to this one. Expect resistance. It amazes me how many of us foolishly think that life is going to go great. Every moment, all the time, we will never be sick. We will never be disappointed. We will never get hurt. We will never be in pain. No one will ever die before we think they should. And since we should never die, everyone is going to live forever. That's if we were in charge of the world. You see, did you catch the part that says, you have an adversary? You have an enemy. Some of you don't have a competitive nature. You need to get one. You have an enemy. You need to defeat him. It says you have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The question is, will it be you? Will you lose touch with reality? That's why it also says that not drunk is being self-controlled because being self-controlled means don't react to the schemes of the enemy. But we do, don't we? The enemy comes and, and he whispers in somebody's ear and they say something to you that they shouldn't have said and you say something back that you would have never said if you had prayed first. The enemy uses some circumstances in your life to make you angry or frustrated and you do something you would have never done if you had prayed first. We find ourselves not being self-controlled. Instead, we just react to the enemy. And the enemy's like, oh, look at this, man. Well, over here's one that doesn't follow God at all. But then I got you too. You say you follow God, but look at how you act because you have no self-control. You're not sober-minded. You take the bait for everything that I give you. Being self-controlled means don't give him an opportunity through your lack of self-control. We're going to talk more about this in this series, but it doesn't hurt for you to hear it more than once because it is so important. Hear this. The devil is an opportunist. The devil is an opportunist. He is looking for opportunities. He has nothing if you do not give him an opportunity. 
He has no rights on his own. He has no permission on his own. He is defeated. He is looking for an opportunity. But so often, it is the way we think. It is the way we feel. It is the way things we do where we lack self-control that we open the doors and say, come on and take me down. It's our lack of self-control that gives the enemy an opportunity. You see, for followers of Jesus, resistance is expected. Plain and simple. Expect the enemy to come after you. You remember what we read? The dragon became furious and went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If this is the purpose of your life, you have someone who has declared war on you. Declared war. I mean, those are strong words. Think about that. They don't want to just kind of like make you have a bad day. He's after your family. He's after your marriage. He's after your children. He's after your health. He's after your faith. He's after everything. He has declared war on you to destroy you, to take you away from God and everything that God intends for you. It's a serious war. Resistance is expected. Be sober-minded and stop expecting some perfect civilian life. You see, one of the things we've got to do is get a grip on reality with the life we should expect. If you're a prisoner, you should expect the quality of life that comes with any other prisoner of war. That means you're restricted, you're captive, you don't get to do what you want to do. You try and you fail, you're miserable, you're not in charge of the comfort of your own life. Things don't go the way that you would like for them to go. Someone is keeping you down, someone is, is making your life miserable. That's what it feels like to be a prisoner of war. If you don't want to surrender your life to Jesus, then accept that you're going to have a life that fits with being a prisoner of war. On the other hand, if you do follow Jesus, then you need to accept a lifestyle that goes not with a civilian, but goes with a soldier. You see, if you were to ask a soldier, when you left the compound and went to the front lines and somebody shot at you, were you surprised? Of course not, I wasn't surprised. I'm a soldier, I'm in a uniform, I was at the front lines. I'm going to get shot at. It doesn't change my faith. And, and we're so surprised when the enemy takes a pot shot at us. We're like, oh my gosh. Whoa, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect the life of a soldier. I expected the life of a civilian. So if the enemy can just give me a little life of a soldier and I don't expect it, he can take me down. I mean, suddenly I'm going to start saying, whoa, wait a minute, that happened to me and that's not what I wanted. God's not good. Wait a minute, this person's dying earlier than I thought they should. That's not good. I've got a sickness the doctor can't heal. That's not good. God is just not taking care of me. God is just not good. No, those are shots from the enemy. And we should not be surprised when we live in a fallen, broken world with sin and sickness and death that things are going to go wrong. And we should say, bring it on. Because our, our wrong expect not that we love that, but I mean, come on, get with me here. See, here's the problem. That's what Jesus did. Did Jesus ever get... This wonderful, wonderful life that we dream of on earth? No. He gave up life on earth to get what was promised him. And all of us somehow still believe that the answer is not heaven. The answer is here. Give me my white picket fence, my two and a half kids, and my Disney vacation. That's what I'm after. And that's going to show me that God loves me. That's going to show me that things are going well. No, that's what a civilian wants. 
What a soldier wants is to stay alive till the next day to keep fighting the battle because someday he's going home. Did y'all get that one? Got to stop living like civilians. Wanting life here? Life here is going to have good days. I thank God for the good days. I thank God for the days I get to sit on a Caribbean beach with my wife. I mean, seriously, and you should too. I thank God for the vacation days where I'm hanging out with my family and we're just having fun. I thank God for family nights where we can rent Captain Underpants and pop popcorn, which we did Friday night. I thank God for those. But I am not surprised. I'm not surprised when bills come out of the blue, when things break that shouldn't break, when, when difficulties come. I'm not surprised. When, when I suddenly am sick for two weeks straight because I decided to preach a series on spiritual warfare. I'm not surprised. I don't say God's not good. I'm not surprised if my wife faces sickness for four years straight because she chose to marry someone who is on the front lines of the kingdom of God. No, I'm not surprised that the enemy takes shots at us. I'm not surprised that we went through a struggle for years with our teenage son because the enemy wanted him. No, I'm not surprised. We've got to stop being surprised civilians and be expectant soldiers. Because there's a war. And God won. Come on. And Satan lost. And we try to hold to that truth and say, well, if God won and Satan lost, then explain my troubles. Okay, let me do it. You see, I skipped one of those verses as we were reading that passage in Revelation. It goes like this. But woe to you, O earth. I can just see God shaking his head as he says. Woe to you, O earth, and all that lives in it. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. The devil has come to you in great wrath. Woe to you. Because he knows his days are short. You see, God has won and Satan has lost. But let me explain to you the picture in which we live. For some of you, you like Westerns. Who likes Westerns? Well, nobody. <laughs> Who likes action movies like James Bond, Jason Bourne? There you go. Star Wars, any of those kinds of things. Who likes war movies? Okay, it doesn't matter. We've got everybody with one of those. Whatever it is, it's the end of the movie and the bad guy, the last bad guy gets shot and he's laying on the ground, and he's dying, and the good guys are standing there, and the movie they think is over because, yes, we have won. The enemy has lost. But as he lays there on the ground, he reaches, and he grabs his gun, and with his shaky hand, he looks to take one more shot. The enemy wants to know. I'm going down, but who's going to go with me? Just one more shot. If I can just get one more of you to say, how dare God let my mother die of that sickness? He's not good. The enemy goes, one more. If he can just get one more to say, how dare you take my child? One more. If he can get one more to say, God, I prayed, I asked you for a job. Instead, I got fired and now I'm bankrupt. You're not good. One more. He took one more down as he goes down. He took one more. That's all he's after. He's laying on the ground. He's wounded. He's dying. And he is seeing if he can take one more of us with whatever it is you face. If he can just get one more. Why 
did my spouse do that to me? I married a Christian so that I would never face what I am facing. God, I cannot believe you didn't protect me from this. I waited, I prayed, and look at this. You're not good. One more. What do you face? What do you face that he's trying? One more. He's down, and he's going down, but he wants to take every single one of us with him. Can he get just one more? Land on the ground. Will you fall if he takes a shot at you? Fortunately, this, unfortunately is what I said. It didn't come out right. This past week, we experienced another mass shooting in our country. And the sad part is this has become so commonplace that we're only shocked now by the numbers of killed and wounded, but not by the event itself. There were guns involved. There was a mental state involved. Sometimes there's a terrorist affiliation involved. And, well, all of those things may be involved in the natural realm, but we can very easily lose sight of the real problem. The real problem is this was an act of evil. See, the enemy is an opportunist, and he's looking for circumstances or people that will be an agent for him or just be deceived long enough to do what he wants done. And the problem is civilians watch the news to find out about what's going on. I just want to ask you a what if. What if? What if the church didn't think it was the FBI's job to keep the world safe, but theirs? What if the church stopped thinking we were a bunch of civilians hoping that somebody else would do our job for us? What if we were actually soldiers that figured out it was up to us? You see, let me paint you a different picture. Let's imagine 20 years into the future, there's going to be another mass shooting. Right now, right now, the enemy is seizing the opportunity. Right now, he's preparing that person. Right now, there's a young kid whose father abuses him, whose stepmom doesn't care. Right now, there's a child that goes to school that gets picked on. Maybe he's too short, maybe he's too tall, maybe who knows what. It doesn't matter. The bitterness grows. The anger grows. No one will be his friend. He's got no outlets. More and more bitterness, more and more anger, more and more rejection. The hatred for the successful human people grows and grows and grows and the enemy has him on a 20 year plan he's got an event that he's, he's working and what if instead of expecting the FBI to figure out that kid exists what if what if a kid lives next door to that kid who says why don't you come to my youth group with me every single week no matter how many times he says no what if he goes off to college and his roommate says, hey, why don't you come to a Bible study with me every single week? What if when he gets a job and God says to the person in the next cubicle, hey, go to lunch with him and tell him that I died for him? What if instead of saying, oh, no, God, I could never talk to him. He's weird. I don't want to go to lunch with him. What if that person actually obeyed? What if somewhere along the way, because the church understood they were soldiers and not civilians, that that person became a committed follower of Jesus who could never commit the kind of evil that Satan 
wants them to. What if? What if we did our jobs as soldiers and stopped watching the world go by as civilians, that everyone became committed followers of Jesus, that there was no one left to be an agent of evil for Satan? What if? Is anybody with me? When I look at things like that in the news and somebody says, let's take away guns, and I think, seriously, you can't take away evil by taking away guns. That's not a political statement. You just can't solve the problem with the circumstance. Because Satan is what is behind what we see. And the solution is not a law. The solution is not a government agency. The solution is when the army of God wakes up and realizes we've been charged to bring peace to the earth. Evil on the earth is our problem. You want to be sober-minded? Read the screen. This is being sober-minded. There is a war. There are no civilians. And resistance is expected. You wear a uniform. You will get shot at. That's what it means to be sober-minded. Write this down. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on a mirror. Put it somewhere that every day you'll wake up and say, today the enemy is going to take a shot at me. And that's okay because there is a war. And I'm not a civilian. And I expect resistance because I follow Jesus with all my heart. That is what it means to be sober-minded. There is a war. And there are no civilians. And resistance is expected. I want to close by talking to those of you that may not have liked what I said earlier when I said... If you have not made Jesus your king, you're not a soldier, you're a prisoner. I didn't like it when I heard it. Stop worrying about whether or not you like it. Just decide if today's the day you want to change it. The Bible tells us that when we say Jesus died for me and I receive that, we are transferred into his kingdom. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that this morning. But I'm not going to make you do anything weird. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come down front. Right where you're seated, would you all just pray with me? Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me voluntarily by your own choice because you love me so that I could be rescued from being a prisoner. I thank you for your forgiveness. And my simple prayer here today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose as a soldier in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at Grace Life Church. Yeah.